1: The following podcast includes explicit language, but we assume that's what you came for.
2: Hi, I'm Josh Levine, Slate's national editor, and this is Hang Up and Listen for the week of October 24th, 2022. On this week's show, Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer and the Effectively Wild podcast. He will be here to talk about the World Series matchup between the Astros and the Phillies and not the Yankees. We'll also discuss the declines of Russell Wilson, Tom Brady, and Aaron Rodgers and whether they're temporary or less so and will assess whether Adam Silver's NBA promotion and relegation talk is for real or less so. And if it is real, the Lakers are definitely getting relegated. I'm in Washington, D.C., and I'm the author of The Queen, the host of the podcast One Year. Also in D.C., Stefan Fatsis, he's the author of the books Wild and Outside, Word Freak, and A Few Seconds of Panic. Hello, Stefan. Hi, Josh. I went to a college football game this weekend. Say more. Brown against Cornell,
3: Joel. Oh, my God, the end of this game. Brown had the ball on the one with a chance to win with, like, 20 seconds to go. Oof. First down, loss of four, penalty. Second down, loss of whatever. Third down, drops back from the 20.
2: is a very desultory play-by-play. Strip sack, <laughs> fumble, game over. Wait, so it was not, homecoming for Brown, all
3: those
1: poor oh, Brunonians. Josh, I know, was, was Josh, yeah, was like at the end of yeah. this. Yeah, uh, what have you, you this you've spent all this time talking about LSU? Why haven't you brought up Brown?
2: I did go to one Brown football game. That was, you know, Joel, like you talk about SMU having a great FCS uh, atmosphere.
1: Delightful for a few thousand fans <laughs> and friends. Just, you know, <laughs> nice, nice little, little, nice little stadium, nice little atmosphere some of us, there, though.
2: Some of us grew up with uh, 100,000, you know, it's hard to. To make the steep the steep climb down, fair there, enough. There was it a, never uh,
3: rains in Tiger Stadium. There was, I think, a parent sitting a few a few uh, rows in in front of us, like dropping f bombs over Brown's poor performance at the end of the game. It was ugly, not befitting.
2: Ex- high expectations. Home, it means more in the Ivy League. So, <laughs> uh, with us from California, host of Slow Burn season three and six, and. Can, remains proud of Sunny Dykes University, uh, Joel Anderson. I liked how there was a little bit of sorrow with your having to troll Kansas State. You're like, you know, these guys, they played really hard, but, you know, I just have to say, L-State, you know, with a, little, with a, with a tear going down your down your face. Those
1: boys fight hard, man. And for people that aren't old enough, they also, I still think of Kansas State as the program... That, you know, like the little program that could, um, you know, pe- a lot of people don't remember that that was probably the worst FBS program in the country as recently as like a generation ago. And so, you know, I kind of always have a little soft spot for them when they put up a good fight. But, uh, you know, they were against the, they were up against the number eight, now number seven team in the country uh, on their home field for homecoming blackout. I mean, you know, you just kind of that's a, that's a tough environment for any program to go into, let alone <laughs> K-State.
2: So for kids, you know, growing up now, you know, like how Nebraska is really terrible. Like that's how Kansas State used to be. Um, (laughs) In our Slate Plus segment, we are going to talk about uh, roughing the passer penalties in the NFL and uh, whether they should just be playing flag football out there. What's going on, refs? What are you protecting these quarterbacks for? It's ridiculous. What did Troy
1: Aikman say they should be wearing? I'm not going to go there. You're not going to go there? Okay.
2: You can can listen to Troy on your own time. Not on this podcast. Um, But if you want to listen to that, and it's an interesting conversation about what they should do about roughing the passer. Um, you need to be a Slate Plus member. And we have a special announcement um, that for a limited time, you can get six months of Slate Plus for just $29. It's a, wow. a, a good That's really sort of good. Price. That's a good deal. It is a very That's, good deal. Yeah. It's 50% off. And as a member, you'll get no ads on any Slate podcasts. you get unlimited reading on the Slate site. You'll get member-exclusive segments of Hang Up and Listen and other shows and member-exclusive episodes, One Year, Slow Burn, etc., um, sign up for Slate Plus at slate.com slash hangout plus. You can access all of Slate's content and support our work. It's just $29 for six months and it's through October 28th. So you only have this week to get that deal. So sign up now, slate.com slash hangout plus. Personal affront. If you don't sign up, according to Joel, I wouldn't ever say that.
3: If the Philadelphia Phillies can beat the Houston Astros, they will, with a regular season record of 87 and 75, be the third worst World Series champion behind only the 2006 St. Louis Cardinals, 83 wins, and the 1987 Minnesota Twins, 85 wins. While this is good trivia, it doesn't mean much because while baseball's playoffs, as we've discussed, do a fine job of anointing a champion, they do a terrible one of determining which is the best team. So what would it take? To determine the best team? In a piece in The Ringer last week, our friend Ben Lindbergh noted that for Major League Baseball to achieve the playoff success rate of the NBA based on regular season records, it would need to stage a best of 75 finals. Ben Lindbergh is here now. He's a senior editor at The Ringer, the co host of the podcast Effectively Wild, and the co author of The MVP Machine and The Only Rule Is It Has to Work. Hi, Ben. Hey, guys. All right, so I would be interested in a best-of-75 final only if the teams had to play nonstop like a dance marathon. Then we're uh-huh. having this conversation about playoff equity because a bunch of 100-win teams, Dodgers, Mets, Braves, were dumped out in the early rounds. But it feels kind of like, you know, after all these years, everybody should understand that baseball is a long season and short series are random. But here we are again.
4: Yeah, it's definitely not a new conversation or a new complaint by fans of teams that were really good during the regular season and then exited quickly. I guess it kind of came to the fore just because you had a confluence of a few very good teams getting knocked out in quick succession, and you also have a new playoff format, and expanded playoff field. Not that that was really directly responsible for the upsets we saw. It's more just a function of baseball. So I like your they shoot baseball players, don't they idea? And proposal for the playoffs, but I'm not sure that that would work with uh, appetites from TV audiences, let alone the weather, which has already become uncooperative. Do you
1: think the mlb cares though about those 100 win teams losing ahead of the world series because i think about in like college football or whatever or or, or or actually the march madness is probably the better thing sometimes like duke loses and they're counting on duke to bring in viewers so like it probably is better for major league baseball if those really good teams make it to the world series but like do you get the sense that that even really matters to them
4: I said in my article that there's sort of an upset sweet spot where obviously you don't want the favorites always to win and you don't want the underdogs always to win because then it would seem sort of meaningless or just overly predictable and boring. So you want some number of upsets because that's exciting. I guess in this specific case, maybe MLB would have wanted, let's say, the Mets and the Dodgers to continue if we assume that they just want the big market, big audience teams to advance. But- beyond that, beyond the specific teams, I think there's obviously a benefit to having some upsets. And I think you just have to understand what you're watching and what you're getting into and just maintain a healthy perspective, which sports fans are great at, historically speaking. (laughs) So as long as you just understand that, yeah, the regular season tells you more maybe about the quality of the teams and the playoffs are just a tournament. It's just sort of a separate entity where anything can happen. And we all sort of pretend that it's just as meaningful, if not more meaningful, I think you can enjoy it perhaps without assuming that it means that if you win, you were necessarily the better team. You just were the better team in that series, presumably. So it's tough to maintain that perspective, though, because that World Series or bust mindset is really drilled into fans. And I think a lot of teams think that if their team made it, then they're the team of destiny and they were the better team all along, which is not necessarily true, but it's just a kind of collective fiction that we all buy into and enjoy for a month or so. And it really has been enjoyable. How do you square
2: the fact that it's impossible to build a team to win in the playoffs with the fact that the Houston Astros always win in the playoffs? And I feel, yeah, I felt like we went way too long in the segment and talking about this in a kind of cool and dispassionate we're above it all sort of way. The playoffs, blah, blah, blah. Who cares? You know, it's Mm. just the da, 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 da. But we need to feed Joel's uh, mm. you know, hunger and passion to troll the world about mm. the Astros continued success. And so I will I will ask seriously. Hey, New York's case.
1: been good to me, man, in my life. I appreciate New York and uh, its sports team starting with the 94 <laughs> Knicks. Appreciate y'all. I, w-
2: I will ask seriously. Is there any, something we can say about the Astros' sustained success? It's like a record, too. They made the ALCS like six times in a row. Nobody had mm-hmm. ever done that before. There must, Ben Lindbergh, be something that they're doing right here.
4: Well, first of all, I think it's fine for Joel to be the human embodiment of the the broom that the Astros have been tweeting out every time they sweep someone. (laughs) That's fine. They deserve it. They've earned it. As far as we know, they're not cheating anymore. This is all on the level. They're just a really good team. And Joel don't...
2: spend way too much time in the gym to be taught, just you know, <laughs> described as a broomstick. I find
4: I'm a <laughs> failure. Yeah, I guess that's maybe more your build, Josh. Sorry. <laughs> oh man. No, <laughs> so, I think that all you can do is get there, and they have gotten there very consistently, and they've been one of the better teams, if not the best team, in the playoff field year after year. So yeah, they have made it to six straight ALCSs. They've only won one championship thus far. Mm-hmm. And, mm. and that's the one that is mm. tainted by the sign stealing. Mm.
2: Mm. Wow. Whoa. whoa. Only one championship.
4: Whoa. <laughs> wow. Hey, <whoa. laughs> Only one championship. Wow.
1: And of course, we don't they, know the Yankees <laughs> won. Uh, all, all those championships were clean. But go ahead.
4: <laughs> they might be about to add a second. But it is true that they've only won one. And that one is the one that just so happened to be the year when they were sign stealing. Not saying that there is a causal connection there. It could be a coincidence. But even everything they are that, not.
2: Everything that happens in the playoffs is a coincidence. We've established yeah, that. Yeah. <laughs> yes,
4: exactly. Right. Unless you believe in teams of destinies or that winning a short series means that you were entitled to to win all along. I think they're just really good, though. I mean, I think there have been a lot of studies that showed that the sign stealing probably didn't have that big an impact overall. There there's, we go. There's no way to say that they didn't win a specific series because of it. We can't rule it out. But... I think just the fact that they have continued to win at this level probably tells you that they were good even without the side stealing, which makes it even more senseless that they were doing it in the first place because they were just a really good baseball team that didn't necessarily need to cheat to be good. But this version of the Astros this year is, if not the best, it's, it's close to the best they've been. You could make a case for the 2019 team too. So they have sort of steamrolled the Yankees a lot lately. And I think for the most part, they've just been the better team, which again is not a Necessarily, why they won. Definitely some luck has been on the Astros' side, as Aaron Boone said. <laughs> Maybe he shouldn't have said that, but he did say it, and perhaps there's some truth to it. You you have to have some luck on your side to sweep your way through the playoffs, but you also have to be good, and the Astros are very good, too.
3: Yeah, there's no doubt the Astros pitched better, they hit better, they played better. The Yankees made errors, um, and the Yankees also had injuries, and the Yankees were cycling through shortstops and having Giancarlo Stanton played left field for the first time in like three years in Yankee Stadium. I mean, it was not, you know, it was not the stable team that the Astros rolled out. And that's to take nothing away from the Astros. They kicked their asses. Um, yeah. Before we, can I just back up for one second, Ben? Because I've heard a lot of, and Joel has his finger up to talk about the Astros, and let's do that. I have one quick question, which is that for all of the tinkering with the playoff format, the one thing that I haven't heard is that if we really care about the, the teams with who, who win more games during the regular season having an advantage, you know, we saw this year they got, um, all game, all home games in the first round, this new first round of the playoffs. Has anyone floated the idea of, making the team with the worst record have to win more games in a series? Like, you know... I, I you have would... not
4: heard it seriously considered here. That's what they do in the KBO in Korea. Right. They do that. They they start off the, the worst team with a deficit, at least in some rounds, and they have sort of a ladder where you have to work your way up, and the lowest-seeded team plays the next lowest-seeded, and then eventually they get to the higher seeds, and so it is a more predictable outcome. The better team wins more often... So, I think if you wanted to actually have the playoff results reflect the regular season results more reliably without playing a best of 75 series and having only mm-hmm. Stefan Fatsis tuning in by the end, I think that wouldn't be a bad way to do it, but it would there are be way more an fun adjustment, ways you right? could
2: there are way more fun ways you could advantage the team with the best record. You could give them like ladders in the outfield, you could <laughs> move the fences, you know you know just give them just give give them a com- completely easy path and not make them earn it, Stefan.
4: Yeah, sure. Just, you know, take a fielder away from the worst team, mm-hmm. whatever whatever it takes, some weird, wacky version of baseball. Uh, yeah. yeah. But yeah, yeah. you could also just accept that sure. it's weird and wacky and weird stuff happens. So that's what we've been living with to this point. Can
1: I ask a question that's sort of weird and off the wall here? Because this occurred to me um, as a longtime Astros fan. They were in the National League for 50 years until 2012, and now all of a sudden they've moved over to the American League and have become become dominant. And I'm just, I'm just, even, I'm asking you, Ben, and even you, Josh, and stuff, and like, is it weird for you all to think of the Astros as an American League team? Because when I grew up, like the Cubs, the Reds, like those were their rivals, and like those were the games that you counted on to fill up the home stadium, and now it's just like, eh, they're in the American League playing the fucking Mariners and the Angels, and that's supposed to mean something. Um, but, like, have you all gotten adjusted to that, the idea that the Astros are an American League team
4: now? No. It took me a little while to get used to the new alignment. Yeah. But at this point, basically, the leagues are like conferences. I mean, there's just no difference between them. We have a universal DH now. There isn't any real league rivalry. There aren't really any differences in in the rule sets or anything. And so a lot of that historical AL NL rivalry, like, you know, the World Series and the All-Star game really means something for bragging rights between leagues. Oh, that's really fallen by the wayside. So. For me, I don't miss it that much. I don't care all that much about there being a difference between the leagues. I'm fine with it kind of being like most other major sports and leagues where it's just sort of a geographic alignment or it's just happenstance more so than there's a real difference here. But that's the way that we've trended. So I don't even think of the Astros as as a former NL team so much anymore. It's been a while.
3: I don't either. And, and yet, you know, you said that we've sanded down those differences, Ben, but these are not geographically based. This is not Eastern Conference, Western Conference. No. There is still this fiction that these leagues exist. And mm-hmm. at some point in the future, I imagine that those are going
4: to be um, yes, adjusted. Yes, maybe so, especially if, if expansion happens. Yeah.
2: Um, let's talk about Bryce Harper. And given that these games do happen, even if the outcomes Wait, are- We're
3: going we're gonna to move on from the Astros without talking about Ted Cruz behind home plate. I think so. <laughs> only if I want to
1: talk about, only if I want to talk about Rudy Giuliani or, you know, Donald Trump in his Yankees jacket throwing out first pitches or whatever. If you want to, that's fine.
4: We're going.
3: The Yankees may have lost, but the fans did a great job of serenading Cruz when he left in the sixth inning.
4: It's well, a small victory, I guess. So,
2: given that these games happen, we're going to create uh playoff heroes. That's never going to uh be be something that uh doesn't happen. Um and the Bryce Harper kind of you know after have after breaking his thumb and and struggling when he came back seeing him um hit that home home run to send them to the world series having a great playoffs so far um it's been kind of strangely surprising to me ben given all the hype around him he's had a kind of rocky career like these two mvp seasons but also some um years where he you know, he's often been compared to Mike Trout, definitely was not as consistently great um, as as Mike Trout has been, not even close to it. Um, and then he signs this enormous contract in a city that eats its sports heroes alive mm-hmm. and seeing that, like, this is maybe the one enormous contract to a hitter um, that seems like it could be, like, actually not an atrocious, like, team-killing deal. Like, I find I find it all kind of... Um, strange and surprising, even though like Bryce Harper is good at baseball is maybe like not um, a, a confounding
4: thing at all. Yeah, he has had a really fascinating career. I think the expectations were set just so high, just unmeetably high by being a teenage phenom. But really, he has met or surpassed any reasonable expectations, I think you could say at this sure. point. I mean, he's clearly on a Hall of Fame path. He has won a couple MVP awards. He would have been on an MVP path this year, too, before he got hurt and missed time and came back kind of compromised. Now he's added playoff hero to his resume, which was one thing that was lacking, largely due to a lack of opportunity, more so than him not playing well in the postseason. And he's been one of the quote unquote faces of the game, right? He is just a, a very vocal, very visible, very charismatic player. Even in the series, like so many highlights, so many GIFs, like he's very expressive, very demonstrative. He had that face he made after Kyle Schwarber hit almost a 500-foot homer that just instantly joined the baseball GIF pantheon. So he's a big star, and early in his career, you'd get various surveys of players where they would say, oh, Bryce Harper is the most overrated player. But really, you can't call him overrated anymore. He's just really good. He's been one of the best players in baseball for a while now. And yeah, it's great. Like you sign a superstar to a big contract and he really ingratiated himself with Phillies fans right away, almost pandered to them, I guess, and just sort of, you know, got some cheap heat just by talking up Philadelphia as a place and all the things that Philly fans want to hear out of Philly players. But he has backed that up by winning an MVP award and now being a postseason hero. And you can't really count on the bat being in the hands of your high-priced superstar at that big moment. It just so happened this time. You know, If the batting order had lined up differently, he would not have had the bat in his hands at that point. But he did. And it's always special when things lined up like that so that the big star, the guy you want at the plate, actually gets to come to the plate at that moment and have a great at bat and hit a home run and it was just a huge moment and really kind of makes his legacy if it wasn't made already. But, you know, he's had the opportunity to do that, right? He had to be put in that place. Whereas Mike Trout, as you said, they came up around the same time and they've often been compared. And yeah, Trout has been a better player, but he is not getting in that opportunity to hit that big home run because the Angels are bad every year. So that's what people lament when they lament the Angels being bad. It's that we don't get to see Mike Trout have that kind of moment because he's just not put in that position.
3: And it's the narrative is playing itself out in the way that 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 Harper and his father sort of orchestrated when he left Washington for Philadelphia. I mean, the one thing they played up was that he was committed to the city, no opt-outs in his contract, which was very Mm -hmm. rare for a Scott Boris client. His father is still talking about why Bryce connects so well with Philadelphia. I think it's because I was an iron worker. I'm blue collar. He was raised in that kind of a family. Your kid has a $330 million contract. But these narratives do persist. And this is the rare case where performance meets story and if they win the world series they're gonna need the philly cops to go on like triple special overtime
4: you're right yeah i mean he hadn't been on a team that had won a postseason series until this year and now they're winning largely on the strength of his performance i mean it's just one player on a team but he's having to this point one of the best postseasons ever so it's been a lot of fun to watch joel what do you think of the city of philadelphia maybe we can end there (laughs)
1: <laughs> i think philadelphia is a lovely town i've actually you know it's funny and this isn't interesting probably but uh i don't think i've ever <laughs> met anybody from philadelphia that i don't like so uh
2: which that's, is that's not test- a winning attitude Joel. come on
1: yeah i mean i don't <laughs> i don't have any beef with them but i don't i mean you know i mean they don't want this either uh <laughs> but <laughs> I, um i i guess my question is and so the the Yankees losing is representative of some larger uh organizational problem apparently like people are wanting the Yankees to do something um but the Dodgers also you know they've gotten I mean they've gotten a World Series through this and they've done really well um but they've come up short a couple times recently too except for the pandemic shortened season or whatever so should those Teams do anything given how successful they were in the regular season? Or is it like a lot of that just like fans at the end of the year disappointed that, you know, it didn't end the way that it looked like it might end?
4: I think it's a lot of the latter and a little bit of the former too. The Dodgers have just had one of the greatest regular season runs of all time. So it's hard to say that they should change much, even though they have had a lot of playoff exits and some of them with some kind of controversial managerial decisions. The Yankees, they started off so well this year, like on a historic pace, that I think they really raised expectations to perhaps an unreasonable level. And then they really were not very good for a while, and they just kind of backed into the playoffs. They almost blew a very large lead. 15 and a half and games. Yeah. And then they got to this point and, you know, they were shorthanded. They lost a lot of players. Some of the deficiencies of that roster were exposed. But it remains the case. They won 99 games this year. They haven't had a losing season since the early 90s. You know, most fan bases would be happy to have it the way that the Yankees have it. But I think it's partly the fact that They have not gone out and, other than Garrett Cole in recent years, really signed the biggest ticket free agents. They've kind of tried to do what teams with lower payrolls might do and mix and match and find undervalued guys. And people expect the Yankees to go out if they have a vacancy at shortstop, sign Carlos Correa. If they have a hole at first base, sign Freddie Freeman. And they haven't really done that. They've kind of taken the budget route and tried to have a a better holistic roster without really breaking the bank for anyone. It it just seems like that is partly an ownership issue that the new younger Steinbrenner is not as willing to just blow everyone away payroll-wise as his father was. It seems like Steve Cohen of the Mets is the biggest spender in New York now. So I think Yankees fans are frustrated about that. They're frustrated about just the way the Things ended and and some of the messaging and, and Aaron Boone maybe not being as uh, fired up as they want him to be. So some of it is sort of a silly overreaction and some of it I think is a reasonable response to the Yankees not really acting the way the Yankees used to in good ways but also in some bad ways too. OK. But, OK. One yeah.
3: One word answer. Will they break the bank for Aaron Judge? Yes. Okay. That's an answer. That's all we (laughs) need to hear, Ben. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Ben Lindbergh is a senior editor at The Ringer, the co host of Effectively Wild, the podcast, and co author of The MVP Machine. And the only rule is it has to work. Ben, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks, guys. Up next, Russell Wilson, Tom Brady, and Aaron Rodgers. Swan songs?
2: Terms apply. On Sunday, quarterback Russell Wilson sat out of the Denver Broncos' loss against the New York Jets, reportedly due to a torn hamstring. This came just days after social media went wild, with reports that his signature sandwich, the Danger Witch, had been taken off the menu at Subway due to his extremely bad acting and or his extremely bad play. While Subway insists that the Danger Witch sub was simply cycled out in favor of, quote, some new craveable options, my perusal of Subway's online menu calls that claim into serious question. Joel, as someone known for his football acumen and extremely questionable food takes, what do you think is less palatable? Wilson's nearly league-worst quarterbacking statistics or... Pepperoni, salami, black forest ham, bacon, provolone, lettuce, green peppers, tomatoes, banana peppers, yellow mustard, and mayo on Italian herbs and cheese bread. And before you answer, let me remind you that if you want to make that a meal, it will cost an extra $2.99.
1: You opened the door for this aside. So uh, I guess I haven't been to Subway in a long time because, I mean, there was a time when Subway did a great job of keeping me fed when I didn't have the money for many other options. And do they just have a, quote, sandwich board with signature, signature sandwiches on it? Because I didn't even know, I saw the list of signature sandwiches and I was like, oh, is that like on a
2: different board in, Sa- in Subway? I haven't been in one in a long time. Um, so they have these new vault sandwiches and there was the claim from like subway pr is that oh we need to make room in the vault for these other sandwiches like somehow it, it's just like they have got the ingredients in the bucket it's not like they they need to like truck in the ingredients from like some you know island or mountain or somewhere Wait, you're but telling the- me that
3: derek jeter doesn't personally make the grand salami for me <laughs>
2: Um there's the Vault Witch by Simone Viles. It's still in the vault. The front court <laughs> feast by Charles Barkley. What was your go to um subway order, Joel?
1: Well, I was I, I was mostly just a turkey guy. I just right? got turkey and no cheese on it. Um, you know, and I'd eat a half sandwich every meal, so for lunch and dinner. And this this I mean this I was doing up this up to like my, my late twenties. Um, so I I don't think they had signature sandwiches. If the the, uh, turkey
3: sandwich was named for Manu Ginobili, would you have ordered it?
1: I mean, (laughs) (laughs) sort of an underwhelming option, just like the sandwich. So you just do what you can in a pinch. So that's kind of (laughs) like Manu Ginobili. Uh, But I would never insult that sandwich because my favorite sandwich, shout out Driftwood Deli on El Camino, has turkey, pastrami, bacon, melted provolone, avocado, mayo, lettuce, tomatoes, red onions, chipotle pesto spread on a toasted Dutch Crunch. Roll. There's just like so. a
3: sandwich dartboard, right? And you put up a hundred <laughs> ingredients, it's, and someone each morning throws a dart, and whatever 10 <laughs> ingredients it nails, or what you put in that day.
1: It's called the customer's favorite. And I was not really, I mean, I've loved sandwiches. I was not a huge sandwich guy until I started eating the sandwich. So, anyway, aside, I'm sorry. I didn't mean that to do that. That one didn't sound
2: you, that different from the Danger Witch. It's sort of like a exactly. It's sort of like how Jimmy Garoppolo, who does have his own signature sandwich. So let me scroll down here. Oh <laughs> God, it God, is that's the, the Benicio. Oh, come on, the, man. The, the Benissimo. I, no, I mean, me we're out. getting
1: into Nick Mullins territory now. I mean, come hear on, me out. Man. Hear me out.
2: <laughs> like, Jimmy Garoppolo, really handsome guy, number one. Number, number two, um, he makes all these, like, amazing plays and then just makes horrible plays. And so, like... The the line between quarterbacking excellence and like a guy who is maybe should be a backup, it's not that the, it's not that Garoppolo can't make the throws or can't on his best plays he looks like the best player. It's just the lack of consistency and like maybe every ingredient. You know, maybe mm. there's some black forest ham that's on there mm-hmm. that shouldn't be on there. That's what I'm saying. Mm,
1: that sounds about right. I mean, yeah, didn't nobody said that the sandwich was the best sandwich they had to offer, right? Um, but, uh, so Russell Wilson. <laughs> to, to, so Russell Wilson. To your point. So I'm thinking of all of everything that you, that's been written and said about Russell Wilson, uh, the, through this, this early part of the season. And what I keep coming back to is that he's 33 years old. And do you know who else is 33 years old? Cam Newton. And, and I say that because this is Russ's 10th season in the NFL. In John Elway's 10th season, the Broncos drafted Tommy Maddox in the first round. Dan Marino ruptured his Achilles in his 11th season when he was 32 years old. Joe Montana was in his early 30s when the 49ers brought in Steve Young. So I just wonder if perhaps we've gotten too used to the exceptions to the rule, like Tom Brady, uh Aaron Rodgers, um, and not thought about what the actual life of an NFL player is. Like, it could be that we are witnessing... The aging process in Russell Wilson in the way that it used to be with NFL quarterbacks, that you didn't, you know, have a prime that lasted until you were 36 or 37 years old. Um, and it just seems like in that way, the Broncos just, I mean, I, I hate to say it this way, maybe brought, you know, false bill of goods here, man. You know, this is not, <laughs> this is, this is not the Russell Wilson that anybody thought they were going to get, but maybe we need to start thinking that, hey, everybody can't play till 45 like Tom Brady.
3: Russell Wilson is, uh, you said 32 or 33? He's 33. 33. So he's a year older than Geno Smith, who replaced him in Seattle. And their numbers don't exactly line up. Right now, Geno Smith is uh, a far superior quarterback. Maybe maybe waiting a decade to get good is the secret to success in the (laughs) NFL. And that partly might be true, actually. Getting hit as much as Russell Wilson got hit in Seattle is going to cause a toll. Um It is just a simple fact of the human body um, that the number of hits that these guys sustain, and he sustained, I think, more than, like, anybody in, like, the history of the NFL through his first, like, seven seasons or something, that is going to affect his mobility, it's going to affect his strength, it's going to affect everything about, it, about his ability to play. I mean, there are quarterbacks that leave the league Jake, Jake Plummer, who I hung out with in Denver, quit at 32 because he said, I'm done. I don't want to get hit anymore. I can't do this anymore. It's not worth it. Um, whether that was just Jake being Jake or whether it was the recognition that I've had enough miles and I've gotten hit enough times and I'm not going to be as good at 33, 34, or 35. I don't know. But he made a conscious decision to quit. Russell Wilson... Got paid two hundred and forty five million dollars over five years from the Broncos um to stay,
2: ok. <laughs> I'm curious if you guys think this, like if Occam's razor here is that he is a really good quarterback still. I mean, he has a long run of sustained success in the <laughs> NFL as one of by any metric by scouts, by anything is one of the top ten quarterbacks in the league. And as recently as early 2020, he was like the obvious league MVP after get, getting off to a really fast start um, and then tapered off from there. So new organization with a coach who we've discussed on the show seems completely out of his element. Doug uh, Farrar had a, a piece on this, uh, a coach who doesn't seem to like quarterbacks who play the way that Russell Wilson plays. Um, You know, Wilson is a guy who likes to create outside the pocket, and um, Nathaniel Hackett prefers a, you know, a drop-back pocket, traditional pocket-passing type dude. So we do have evidence in the Pat and Joel, you know, that list was really great um, as a reminder of how fall-offs can be steep and and sudden. Um, And so we do have examples of that. But we also have examples of, you know, people saying Tom Brady was cooked like 10 times in the last decade. Um, but shouldn't and we should you talk throw Tom
3: Brady out as an example, Josh? I mean, he is the outlier of all outliers.
2: Sure. But like, you know, Drew Brees is a short quarterback who managed to uh, play until he was 40 and definitely had some dips in performance. Um with injury, you know, and Russell Wilson has had not just a hamstring, he had like some shoulder issue here. So it would just wouldn't surprise me, um, if this is all a big overreaction and Joel, like maybe we can transition here to the personality stuff because there are people who, I mean, rooting for Russell Wilson to fail. I mean, I think there are some people who are Seahawks fans who are rooting for him to fail, but there is the kind of like cringe awkwardness aspect of Russell Wilson, where it's like kind of funny when he doesn't do well or the inauthenticity that it's like, people are not like sad. A lot of people are not sad that this guy is like falling on his face.
1: It's really weird. And I don't know how to, I don't, I I guess I should have thought about how I want to talk about this, but I do think that sometimes in the locker room, particularly a league that is 80% black we know that in the NFL quarterbacks are basically an extension of management in a lot of ways. Like they have an access to the front office and the owners that not a lot of other people do. They get the lion's share of the money. Um, But they have a real balancing act. Like they've got to balance that management piece of the job with being one of the guys piece of the job. Right. And with a black quarterback, that expectation is going to be even more different. It's going to be even more awkward Um, because People sort of know, hey, you're putting on a face for the public, but you know, you're supposed to be down here with us too, you know? And I always just kind of wonder if Russell Wilson has really sort of struggled to m- maintain that in a way, in a way that makes everybody think that he's sort of fake. And that was a really interesting clip that was on the internet last week with richard sherman and marshawn lynch and you know richard sherman like everybody has a podcast now and he said yeah i feel bad for him you know you should reach out to him to marshawn and marshawn's like yeah man i feel bad i, I thought about reaching out to him but i can't get a hold of him we had to go through his manager uh and he said it more colorfully than that <laughs> OK, uh, if you want to look it up, we, there's reasons why we can't play that clip on here, as I discovered this morning. Uh, but uh you should look it up because it's a much more colorful way of saying. Um, but there's always been that sort of smoke around Russell Wilson. And so I think it's just <laughs> it's weird because most quarterbacks do not get denigrated and laughed at in public the, quite this way, especially somebody who's been great. Like Russell Wilson has been great for like a decade. And great with Marshawn Lynch. Yeah, and great with Marshawn Lynch, and so it's been really uncomfortable to watch him go to a new place and just get not any of the benefit of the doubt that most of these great quarterbacks get, and I just wonder if it's because, you know, hey, he had to straddle that management, one of the guys thinks, oh, well— I don't know if I should tell that. Maybe I'll tell the story in the bonus uh, about one time being in the Seahawks locker room with Russell Wilson there that sort, of, that sort of told me everything I needed to know about his standing in that locker room.
3: And Josh, before we move on to Brady and Rodgers, maybe the 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 bottom line here is that Russell Wilson, because of the miles on his tires, is not the mobile quarterback that he was, combined with the fact that Nathaniel Hackett wants him to be part of be a drop back quarterback, which might make sense for him at this point in his career if he's not as mobile as he used to be. But if he's not good at that, well, then you've got a big problem.
2: I do think that we just need to wait for him to be healthy and then see what it looks like after that. I'm sorry to um, preach uh, uh, a little bit of uh, caution. Well, caution. Why can't with we also takes. wait
1: till they fire their coach? Hire somebody else too. I mean, you know they're I mean?
2: they're they're tied to this guy for you know many many years and many hundreds of millions of dollars. Mm-hmm. So he'll definitely get the chance to uh, redeem this bad early season. Yeah. So you, yeah, what you're I saying,
3: Josh? What you're saying, Josh, is we should all just grab a beef mode by Marshawn Lynch, and wait for uh, for 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 Russell Wilson to come back. <laughs>
2: Um, have it for lunch and for dinner. So yeah, I think you're right, Stefan, that if it, that Brady is on the far end of the the, the take continuum, and that we shouldn't base much of anything on him. And Rodgers is maybe somewhere in the middle. I mean, he's not. He's he's closer to to Brady than to Wilson, I think, in terms of greatness and career accomplishment. But in terms of like the takeovers, he's only won one Super Bowl, so that puts him closer to. To Russell Wilson. And so if we put performance to the side, I, I think what's most interesting to me is kind of how we respond to um, the way these quarterbacks respond to their own t- poor player, their team's poor performance. There have been so many examples this year. There was the clip of Brady yelling at his offensive line and telling him you're like so much better than you're playing and the linemen being quoted after the game being like we love it when t- when our boss Tom Brady talks about how bad we are it's so motivating um, <laughs> and then every week it's Aaron Rodgers talking about how these you know receivers are so bad and that, I mean he doesn't Literally say they're so bad, but he basically says these receivers are horrible. They're like all running the wrong routes. Um, and, uh, you know, it's kind of probably true because they have just like a perverse need to surround him with the worst possible skill position talent.
1: It's interesting, by the way, just real quick. Uh, I used to follow Christian Watson's older brother in high school football and You should follow that account to see the subs, uh, going on a little bit at Aaron Rodgers. I mean, you know, everybody's not, is quite so excited, uh, to take that sort of public embarrassment, uh, in the way that he's been sort of dishing it out to people, right? So.
2: And the, and the Brady thing, I mean based on reporting we've seen, the, like, rift in his marriage was caused by him deciding to come back after telling Giselle he wasn't going to come back, and he comes back to, like, (laughs) this shitty team. (laughs) But wait, didn't... I mean we knew that it was going to be this bad, right? Like, I mean, I, I, I kind of don't... Well, everybody was, like, going into the season, like, they seem to be losing all their offensive linemen. And now in the season, it's like, wow, they have a bad offensive line. Go figure. Yeah. And with Rodgers going into the season, it was like, wow, they seem to have gotten rid of, like, Devontae Adams and all their good receivers. Wonder how that's going to work out. Well, looks like <laughs> it's it's funny how in the NFL is, out of all of the, like, major leagues that we that we follow, kind of the most unpredictable. I mean, you have the Giants and Jets with these, like, winning records and blah, 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 et cetera, and so forth. And yet it is funny how sometimes exactly what you think is going to happen is what happens. And like even a Rogers and a Brady can't defy that gravity, Stefan. But even
3: with all that, do we, do, do we expect this to happen to Tom Brady, you know, yes. and, and Aaron Rodgers. I mean, <laughs> yes. I mean, is it schadenfreude that, you know, yes. that it is happening? I mean, they lost to Carolina on Sunday and You know, I read a wire service story of the recap of the game. Like, every paragraph was hilarious. The Panthers lost 12 of 13 games playing with a third-string quarterback, interim head coach. Mike Evans drops a 64-yard wide-open pass. They're 3-4. and Brady's never been under five hundred after eight games, et cetera, et cetera. Oh, they traded Christian McCaffrey, and they're tanking. Um, So there is some joy in watching this happen, of course. I mean, not that I wish ill on Tom Brady or anybody.
2: Why wouldn't you?
1: I mean, and here's the thing. Every quarterback, every great quarterback we've seen in our life has pretty much ended this way with the exception of John Elway and maybe Joe Montana, who had sort of a decent second act with the Chiefs. But uh, it always looks embarrassing and sad. Like, I felt bad for Peyton Manning at the end of his career. And so it could just be that this is what it's going to be like. And we get the, you know, you, you can choose to laugh or you can have a little empathy. And uh, I'm just going to choose to laugh, actually.
2: Up next, Adam Silver talks about relegation.
1: If your favorite NBA team is bad this year, like really bad, there's some hope at the end of the 82-game slog. The projected number one pick is 7'4", French phenom Victor Wembanyama, someone we've gushed over plenty on this show the past couple of weeks. Landing Wimbenyama is the gold pot at the end of the rainbow, and at least several teams seem poised to take that path. Because the incentive to be terrible is so great this season, NBA Commissioner Adam Silver and the league office are closely watching the bottom of the league standings. According to a recent ESPN.com report, Silver told Phoenix Suns employees that the league has considered a number of measures to prevent teams from tanking, including relegation to the G League. Stefan, uh, relegation probably... Just hearing that term excited you. But Silver later said that relegation would be too destabilizing to the league, but that the NBA would be thinking of ways to keep teams out of the Wimbanyama sweepstakes. As someone who follows European soccer closely, do you think relegation is actually not a terrible idea for the NBA?
3: Let's be clear. So Silver, while talking and apologizing to Sun's employees, said that relegation would mean demoting and promoting, as you said, to and from the G League, which would, quote, so disrupt our business model. And even if you took two teams up from the G League, they wouldn't be equipped to compete in the NBA, he said. Well, duh, the G League isn't the answer. The answer is within the NBA itself Joel, and I'm going to ask Josh to recuse himself from commenting until Joel comments here. Longtime listeners may remember my NBA Pro REL proposal from the December 15th, 2014 show. It was a topic at the time because the NBA was lopsided, the West was way stronger, West team owners were upset because it was harder to make the playoffs. Mark Cuban floated a plan to move Chicago, Detroit, Indiana, and Milwaukee to the west, and Dallas, Houston, San Antonio, and New Orleans to the east. That obviously went nowhere. But that was dumb anyway, because as we've seen fortune shift, my clear and sensible plan was and is this expand to 32 teams, Seattle, Vegas, one NBA Joel, conferences divided into two divisions, initially based on the finish from the previous season, 16 teams in each division. Imbalanced schedule and shorter season, 45 games against teams in your own division, three times per season, 30 games against teams in the other division, home and away. The top 12 from the first division make the playoffs, plus four teams from the second division. The top four in the second division then move up to the first division next year. The bottom four in the first division move down. So no effect on sponsorships, attendance, national or local TV schedules. Everyone is still in the NBA Everyone still has a shot to play for a championship at the end of the season, but one quarter of teams move every season. The weaker teams then have something to play for. You do need to build in some sort of financial or draft incentive to moving up, but this serves the purpose of de-emphasizing tanking. It gets rid of the anachronistic division conference nonsense. We don't need the Atlantic division with Toronto and a Northwest division with Utah and Denver, and it gives fans something to root for and against.
1: Wow, that's a lot to digest there. It's um, so, a well thought through plan. Yeah, I mean, I guess because the issue here is that we want, don't want teams to subvert the competitive spirit of the league by trying to lose games for a guy like Wibanyama. So if Wibinyama comes into this system, who would be most likely to pick him?
3: I think one of the, the top four teams in the second division. Hmm. You gotta give the shitty team something to compete for. So it's not the team with the worst record.
1: But man, what are you gonna do about those bad teams? Like how how do those bad teams get good? Well you can, you can do a lot of things. You can then make the rest of the draft order you know, based on 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 records, you, there's ways to incentivize getting better. See, I guess the thing is, is that, and and not that I think you've thought through. This is really interesting. Uh, I, <laughs> I I I hear what you're saying, and I take it seriously. I just think you don't need to take it seriously. In, in sports, teams are going to be bad, um, for all sorts of reasons, and it's just really hard to legislate out bad teams and bad management. I guess the thing is, like, you're trying to reduce the incentive. For teams being bad, but I just, I don't know. I mean, sometimes I think teams uh intentionally try to get bad, like maybe what the Spurs are doing right now. Like they realize that like that 9-10 spot, maybe not for them, and they just you decide to get bad. But I think for the most part, teams just end up bad, and it's hard to get out of that cycle. And I don't know that punishing them makes it better. Um it we, we only notice like the egregious examples, like the Hinky teams or uh, you know, the the teams in in Oklahoma City right now where they're clearly like not trying to be that competitive. But I mean for the most part, I just think it's hard to stop teams from being bad. Yeah, but this this I think is
3: more makes a team reputationally bad. And as a fan base, you're like, I want to get out of the second division, I want to get up to the first division. It's what drives European soccer. I mean, that and the you know, the hundreds of millions of dollars in revenue that you back Benefit from from moving up to the Premier League, but I think that that's something that's missing from sports. Like you know, feeling shitty about your franchise and wanting them to you know tangibly, like it's noticeable. Like I'm in the second division, that sucks. We got to get out of there.
2: So (laughs) I don't think it's a terrible idea. If you want to use that as a pull quote on your, I'm going to your jacket, (laughs) then that's I I will I will allow it. Um, But uh, I think that it has a branding problem, your imaginary new league, which is, oh, it's not a first division and a second division. Or maybe it is a first division and a second division, but just the idea that it's all still the NBA. Like, I think that would be a hard sell on owners and, and fans um, that um, that we're all one big happy family with, you know, the Kings at the bottom of uh, Division two. Um, And then, you know, I think the thing that really rankles um, and that Adam Silver, I I think, is particularly trying to legislate against is a situation where, um, let's talk about this season, for instance, um, with the play-in. What they really don't want is teams trying to get out of the play-in. And like trying to get into the into the lottery. It's a lottery. So the the way that it works now is that there are six <laughs> teams in each conference that are guaranteed a playoff spot, and then you have teams seven through ten who are in the plan to try to get into the main playoffs. Which I think we all agree is a really great um, shift that the NBA has has made. Makes the um, opening days of the postseason more exciting. More teams get potentially involved makes uh, it a little bit less secure for the top teams and makes them try more during the regular season. But if you have a team that's competing for that 10th s- spot where you could theoretically, if not practically win a championship, if you're number 10 in the conference, you know, you're, you know, you can throw your your hat in there and they're saying, "Oh, actually would it be better for us if we lost these games and didn't even try to win a championship?" Um, so we could, you know, have a slightly better chance to get Victor Wembanyama. Like, that's a bad scene. And so any um, structure, like yours, Stefan, if you've got 12 teams in the top division, you don't want a situation where, um, sixteen. you know, no, you yeah, get an injury ahead. or something happens and the best strategy is to lose on purpose get into that bottom division, get the high draft pick and immediately kind of bounce back up. You want to make sure teams are fighting like hell not to get relegated. But right. then it's like, oh, well, if they're real bad like punishments for getting relegated, then the owners won't want to <laughs> anything to do with that.
3: Yeah, you know, these are complicated matters. I mean, and all of them revolving around revenue generation. I mean, the problem with the play-in game is that You know, we were talking about baseball's structure earlier, and I alluded to the NBA and playoff success. In Best of seven series in the NBA, the better team, the better regular season record advances like 80% of the time. The, The success rate of seven and eight seeds in the NBA playoffs is kind of like, you know, 13 and 14 and 15 seeds in the NCAA basketball tournament. There's not a lot of incentive to being the eighth seed other than you get, you know, a few extra, you know, a couple of home games probably in the playoffs.
2: But also, I I think that that um, kind of more mechanistic way of thinking about things, the kind of championship or bust, you know, rings or banners or bust mentality, Joel, is that it just erases basically the, if not the entire reason, but like an enormous reason why we follow the teams that we follow. We f- we enjoy our, our teams making the playoffs and thinking that they have a chance and having a strong, you know, a 46-win re- regular season when you're, like, happy more than half the time your, your team plays. And so um, it, it just kind of er- erasing that and having the mentality of, like, if you're probably going to lose in the first round of the playoffs why even try to win that i think is even almost more destructive
3: but that's where we are right i mean you're suggesting that like but we, should, the we should be in.
2: incentive, we should in, be incentivizing teams to be like near the bottom of the playoff ladder like we like a lot of a lot of teams are like we don't want to be on the you know kind of mediocrity escalator where you're just like fighting to get to the bottom. But like as consumers of the sport, we want more teams that are like struggling and trying desperately to be like those 46 win teams. That's what makes the competition better and more interesting.
1: Don't you think that's some of that is a change in media narrative over the years? And I don't, I don't want to over, you know, give the media too much credit for how this is. Uh, changed in recent years but it's been basically if you're not competing for a championship then it's a failure now it seems at least that much more uh to be the case than it used to be when i was growing up like it used to be like if you were the portland i mean it was disappointing for the early 90s trailblazers to not have won a championship but if you were competitive for a good number of years or you were those utah jazz teams that had carl malone and john stockton like it wasn't necessarily considered a resolute failure if they didn't win a championship like it was good and important to be a competitive team and I just kind of feel like now it feels like we've kind of locked into a cycle where it's like oh my god if the Lakers don't do it you know I mean obviously the Lakers uh (laughs) their, their, their problems are a lot more than that but like let's just say if you're a team that keeps coming up short um and it feels like it's a lot more of a dire situation than it used to be um, and I don't know I don't know what maybe the change for that is like, I, you know, I have a friend that says that the 73 and nine Warriors really changed like the importance of the regular season for everybody in the NBA that people saw that, oh, well, it doesn't really matter if you, you know, the way that we treated that team before not winning the championship, that it sort of. Hate everybody recalculate and be like, well, wait, what are we putting all of our effort into winning the regular season and having a great regular season? Because if we don't win a championship, then it's going to be seen as a failure anyway.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think there's probably something to that. And I think, Stefan, maybe we can end by talking about the Lakers and the Utah Jazz as as case studies. So the Lakers <laughs> are 0-3 and have looked really gross while being 0-3, just shooting an absolutely abysmal... Um, you know, 20, low, low 20s percentage from three, just looking completely discombobulated, you know, Russell Westbrook um, being terrible. Everybody asking about Russell Westbrook being terrible and like LeBron already being sick of answering the questions. And so um, <laughs> three games into the season, three games into the season. And so, yeah, like, don't you think that was a ma- little bit
1: of acting? We could talk about that. Later, right? I just like I feel like that's like I'm going to make this a deal. So yeah, that yeah. everybody no, knows it's a deal. Anyway,
2: too. I agree. I agree with you, Joel. Mm-hmm. But um, so yeah, like in in this universe, um, we can think about what this means for the Lakers. We can think about what it would mean for the Lakers and the NBA, a universe in which the Lakers being terrible would mean them getting bumped down, and whether anyone would ever consent to that. And then um, the Utah Jazz, they got rid of Donovan Mitchell and Rudy Gobert for a huge um, pile of draft picks after as. Joel has noted, a consistent run of success. Best regular season um, team in the West, I think, a couple of years ago. Never had the playoff success. We're going to blow it up. Um, and now the the plan was, we're going to get this pile of draft picks. We're going to sell off all of our vets. And then we're going to be at the top of the heap for the women-yum sweepstakes. Now they're 3-0. They have this really like frisky team of cast-offs. Uh, I watched a lot of the game against the Pelicans. I mean, they're a tough team to to play against and defend. Like, you know, they got a lot of guys who can shoot. They got a lot of guys who are trying extremely hard, which goes a long way in the regular season. And Stefan, um, you know, the commentary about it is like, wow, Danny Ainge, his like plan isn't really, you know, working out here. Like they're, uh, you know, they're they're going to get rid of Mike Conley. They're probably going to get rid of Jordan Clarkson and all these guys. Like if the ceiling of this jazz team that's had a frisky start is like, yeah, maybe they could be 500 um, it's not gonna last. Like that's obviously not great for the long term future of the franchise, and so you, we've got to we've got to tear it down. Like that seems bad.
3: It does seem bad, especially if oh we're looking pretty good. We've stockpiled draft picks already. There's a tremendous amount of value in the mid to late first round, and even in the second round of the NBA draft, we
2: could be really good again. No, I mean compared to the number the the top, I know three to five. Like it's it's. You, I know you, there's a drop off. Yeah. huge, um, huge, like a, a Marianas Trench drop, drop <laughs> off.
3: <laughs> but you stockpile. You get somebody that turns out to be really good, and you know one of those. You know, your managing nobly say, no. job, You know that you get value for later in the first round, and then you 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 know this is the NBA way. Then you supplement that with. Oh we've got a shit ton of cap room and we can go out and sign someone at the right moment. And I imagine that's the thinking here but you're right. Like the the problem for teams that are forecasting this is that the guys that are on those teams, they want to do well so that they can stay in the NBA. They don't want to roll over so that you can get, you know, a top 5 pick and then cut me.
2: I It'll mean, be really interesting, Joel. I mean, the, the Utah thing will probably not be sustainable, but it would be really interesting what um, Adam Silver would have to say or what he would do if, like, the Jazz go, you know, they start out 14-6 and six and then just start selling off players. Like, that, that's not something that, like, anybody had an- anticipated. You
1: no, know, it's not. I just want to circle back for a second because, you know, Stefan did it and I got to mention it. So you had a, <laughs> you had a tank for a two-time All-Star, so you would a tank for Jeff Ruland. Or, you know, Terry Porter, Jim Paxson, somebody like that, Norm Nixon. That's, I mean, imagine tanking for a two time All Star along the lines of Manu Ginobili. Richard Lewis, two time All Star. Would a team tank for him? I don't know. Maybe.
5: Price and coverage match limited by state law.
3: And now it is time for After Balls, sponsored by Bennett's Prune Juice, endorsed by Kenny Sailors, who says it was okay. ESPN's Sam Borden last week sought to commemorate an important NFL anniversary, 20 years since the last barefooted kick, an extra point by Jeff Wilkins of the St. Louis Rams. But Borden's story took a shock turn when Wilkins told him that he doesn't deserve to be mentioned alongside the barefooted kicking legends of the 80s and 90s, Rich Carlos, Mike Lansford, Tony Franklin, because while his toes were wiggling freely back in 2002, his foot was heavily taped, so he wasn't barefoot at all. Wilkins had doffed his right boot before that season because his mechanics were off. He told Borden that it felt like the cleats on his kicking shoe were skimming the grass, but Wilkins didn't like the feel of skin on ball, so he taped his foot heavily, so much that he says it was as thick as the leather of a shoe. Wilkins made nine of 12 field goals, All 16 of his extra points. After uh, making an extra point against Seattle in week seven, he decided that he had fixed his problem and he put his shoe back on. So while Wikipedia and news stories cite Wilkins as the last barefooted kicker, Borden concludes that history should defer to Wilkins himself. If he doesn't believe he was barefooted, then he wasn't barefooted. That would push the last barefooted kick back more than a decade to Lansford on New Year's Eve in 1990. I could go either way on this, but I admire jeff wilkins for shedding his burden and yes i did try kicking barefoot uh, without tape my kicking coach made me do it it hurt like hell but it did help me focus on finding the right contact point on my foot also my fantasy football team is nicknamed barefooted kickers without the article like bare naked ladies the band barefooted kickers josh what's your barefooted kicker
2: I think I've talked about this on the show before, but since Stefan is reheating his 2014 relegation idea, I'm just going to go for it. And in fairness to me, I don't remember when or in what context I talked about it. So uh enjoy. This is a recipe for sports happiness that I've thought a lot about. And um, I'm going to start Zoomed way out by saying that it's possible to divide up all realms of human experience, not just sports experience, into four different boxes or categories. So if we have one access that's expectations and another access access that's results, you can then subdivide um, the expectation side into high expectations, low expectations, and subdivide the results side into victories and defeats or triumphs and failures or however you wanna label it. So that gives us our four boxes. You can have a triumph when you have high expectations You can have a failure when you have high expectations or you can have a triumph with low expectations or a failure with low expectations. So let's say you're um, having a meeting with your terrible boss and it goes poorly, then that's a failure when you have expect one, failure with low expectations. You have a meeting with your terrible boss and it goes great, that's a triumph with low expectations. Your terrible boss doesn't show up for the meeting, That's a triumph with low expectations, but then you're so excited that your terrible boss didn't show up, you spill coffee on your keyboard. That is a failure when you have high expectations. You get the idea, Um, but I think the key breakdown here, it's not actually between triumph and failure or between high and low expectations. It's between matched uh, results and expectations and mismatched results and expectations. Losing when you think you're gonna lose, winning when you think you're gonna win, they have a lot in common emotionally no surprises everything is status quo winning when you think you're going to lose and losing when you think you're going to win are way more emotionally fraught and volatile situations you expect one thing and you get sucker punched emotionally sometimes in a good sometimes it's a happy sucker punch often when it comes to sports it's more like a jordan pool getting sucker punched sucker punch <laughs> it's a bad sort of feeling We can talk about examples in a second, but the point that I'm circling around to is that the secret to sports happiness is in how we respond to those two unexpected outcomes. And so I'm gonna use Joel, you're gonna be our our example here. Hmm. To make fandom worth it, we need to be maximally happy with unexpected victory. Um, And I feel like with TCU's early season triumphs, I maybe want you to be a little bit happier. Hmm, why? <laughs> because there's this sense going into the season, you were kind of more than iffy on the coach. Mm-hmm. TCU had you beaten Stereo. down. TCU had you beaten down the last few years. They yeah. were on the treadmill of, I think I said escalator of mediocrity before. It's actually the treadmill of mediocrity. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> they were on the tre- they were on the treadmill of mediocrity. They'd had the like outlier. Seasons under uh, coach uh, Gary Patterson, but now it seemed like they were just settling back into, you know, an SMU like existence. So nobody Ooh. is happy. Nobody is happy with that. And then this year, they're undefeated. They're number seven. Um, if they win the conference and go undefeated, they'll be in the playoff oh, probably. Wow. Um, and so if they go it undefeated. Just, it feels like you're not ready to emotionally kind of let go and fully embrace that this is happening.
1: I'm, uh, so TCU's last three wins have come over teams whose quarterbacks did not finish the game. Uh, so let's, let's, you know, maybe I will adjust expectations if they play against a decent team with a starting quarterback that lasts all four quarters. If they can win one of those games, then maybe. You know, you'll see me with the appropriate amount of excitement, but, uh, also let's just keep in mind. I mean, this is, this is the sunny Dykes MO. You know, start out really, really fast, have a, you know, seven and oh, eight and oh start and finish nine and three or, you know. Eight and four. So
2: this is just what I'm talking about, Stefan. This is, Joel is being a great. You're being a great uh, subject for our for our study mm-hmm. here. What is the point? <laughs> what is the point of sports if yep. you can't be happy when your team wins, especially if the wins are unexpected?
3: Why do you need to protect yourself? I mean, are you protecting <laughs> yourself against disappointment, or are you reveling like certain baseball fan bases did for many decades? in their own mediocrity. And then once they succeeded, it was like, oh, we have been doing this all along. They found that success wasn't something to be afraid of, but to embrace.
1: I am happy in the moment uh, when we win games, but also keeping the proper context. I know that if you fall behind 18 points against Kansas State without its starting quarterback, That you're probably not a good team. Not, a, you know, not a good team. But great if you team.
3: come back and score 38 points and win, maybe you are.
1: They are literally overrated. Like, I think that they're a good team, but like, the expectation of being at number seven is a little, they're, they're out ahead of their skis a little bit.
2: And that's... This is a man, this is a man who's been hurt before and doesn't want to get hurt again. We all understand right. that. So... I just think
1: I'm being realistic, uh, <laughs> about what's going on here. And I think everybody else is going to see it eventually as well.
2: Sports fandom defined by just rat, rationalism and, and realism that's that's yeah. the characteristic of the, <laughs> that we all define ourselves by. and so yeah, let's wrap up with this the second category. I generally and Joel is a good object lesson when this isn't the case. I generally mm-hmm. think it's easier to be happy with unexpected victory than it is to manage your emotions when you've convinced yourself that um, victory is assured and and the rug gets pulled out from under you. Like, when I was trying to think of an example, the thing that, um, among my teams, the defeat that's been hardest for people to get over in the last few years is the Saints losing to the Rams in the NFC Championship game with that pass interference call. Oh, man. And the thing that I think is really hard, but is so important to maintaining a lifelong relationship with sports, Stefan, we can go to you here, is Being extremely happy and understanding and realizing how important sports are Mm -hmm. when your team wins and when your team loses, realizing how frivolous and pointless sports are (laughs) and that they have no effect on the real world and in our lives. So there's some truth to that, which I think makes it like a dream that is potentially achievable if you have the right mindset. But I think there is something just extraordinarily um fake about it as well that like performative you mean perform is it i guess so i guess the, the final question for both of you is is it possible to like truly believe in your soul that the wins matter and the losses don't
3: i would argue that you shouldn't convince yourself that the losses don't matter that the whole point of this entire exercise of being a fan is to feel and sometimes you feel the good and sometimes you feel the bad. And if you can rationally embrace both, not by minimizing its importance, but by, by, by maximizing it, by being willing to revel and to suffer at the appropriate time. So, Joel, you should be reveling and you can suffer in two weeks when they lose to whoever they're going <laughs> to lose
2: to. But, but Joel, I'd like, you to, I'd like you to respond to this and then we'll give you the last word. I think everything you're saying is true, but where I would push back is, yes, the losses matter and the wins matter. But we could say that maybe it would be healthier and achievable for the losses to sting and really matter in the moment. Just like Joel was saying that he's able to revel in the wins in the moment. Is it possible, Joel, to revel in the wins in the moment and also allow that feeling of happiness to carry carry you through the week or whatever? But with the losses, just be mad for like have it end when the game ends and then just like go through your week like nothing happened?
1: Well, it's tough. Um, I think I've, I've told the story here before when the Rockets defeated the Knicks in the NBA Finals in 1994. Um, and thanks again, New York fans. You guys have been really great to <laughs> me. Uh, really appreciate it. Um, when I'm driving from my father's home back to my mother's home, this is across town, 30 minute drive and the Rockets had won and I'm just in the car and it just occurred to me as I'm driving home, I was like, Oh man, I didn't win anything today. Like I didn't, I'm not getting a championship ring. <laughs> and it was actually really depressed. It was not depressing. But that was
2: before but, social media and you didn't win the chance to troll Knicks fans. Was, see, so there you
1: go. That's it. So I like, I, so I found that I just really enjoy talking shit about other people's teams when they lose <laughs> as mu- almost as much as when my team wins. And so, you know, if, if Texas, I mean, if TCU beats Texas, for instance That'll be delightful I will have a great time And I will enjoy talking so much shit on Twitter But, um... Yeah, I just I'm holding my cards close to the vest. If you know, hey, look, when we won the Rose Bowl in 2010, and I still think the TCU uh, should be considered the national champion from that year because they were undefeated, untied, and won the Rose Bowl in the year undefeated. Um, and you know, you could say whatever how Auburn acquired Cam Newton that season. So, you know, maybe you know some (laughs) people might want to think about Um, since since cheating is such a big deal uh, to sports fans, like maybe you might want to jump on the train and consider TCU the national champion that year. So, um, yeah, you guys can't. You guys are not going to be able to to, to psychoanalyze <laughs> me on this. Like, this is fixed. This is how this is how I've ch- chosen to enjoy sports. Uh, or not enjoy it, as it were.
2: Your 50-minute hour is up, Joel. Um, that is our show for today. Our producer is Kevin Bendis. Listen to past shows and subscribe or just reach out. Go to slate.com slash hangup, and you can email us at slate.com. And don't forget to subscribe to the show and to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. For Joel Anderson and Stefan Fatsis, I'm Josh Levine. Remember Zalmo Beatty. And thanks for listening.
0: It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with
5: Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane. So shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say.